Scripture is a Real Podcast, a podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have helped them become more real to us because that can help us draw more power out of them and we need that power. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and today we're going to talk about Elijah and the famous contest with the priests of Baal and a few other things and some elements that have made this become very real to me and that held a couple of ideas that I think are crux for understanding the Bible and understanding ourselves and our modern day. Let's jump in. If you remember, our last podcast ended with uh, the idea that Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel were fostering the worship of Baal, and this had become so strong among the house of Israel that Elijah really was sent to do something about this. So Elijah, or his name is Eliyahu, which means uh, Jehovah is my God, and there's something really significant about that. Uh, he comes from the area of Gilead, so this is uh, in the area where the tribes uh, control the, the region on the eastern side of the River Jordan and modern-day Jordan among uh, a lot of hills over there. And uh, he is going to be one of the most prototypical prophets uh, ever. Uh, it, it, when people think of great Old Testament prophets, he's one of the ones that they will think of. Uh, he's the last of what we'd call the non-writing prophets. So we're going to get prophets soon after this, like Amos and Jonah and uh, so on, uh, Isaiah, that, that write. But I don't even know if, uh, if Elijah is literate. He certainly can, uh, can speak powerfully, but uh, he doesn't write, and so we just have stories about him. Or if he did write, we don't have any record of it, but it seems like that, that wasn't a tradition yet. He also will become the kind of prophet that people look to as a prophet. So you have a few uh, prophets that people really think of. You've got Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Isaiah. Those are the, like the great prophets, right? But uh, Eli Elijah is going to come kind of from this wilderness area with this wilderness look. He's going to wear a mantle. Uh, we've actually seen a mantle in prophets before this, but this is when it becomes really, really typical of prophets. Um, he's going to have a leather girdle and come out of the, the wilderness and kind of not respect uh, society, but, but go against society and against the kings. Uh, really, John the Baptist will be in this tradition, wearing uh, leather and camel's hair and coming out of the wilderness and eating locusts and calling kings to the table. People will think of him as an Elijah-like character. So Elijah comes, and he is told by the Lord to seal up the heaven, meaning that he'll make it so it doesn't rain anymore. Now, remember that in Deuteronomy chapter 11, the Israelites were told that if they kept the covenant, that the rain would come and they would prosper. But as soon as they weren't keeping the covenant, there wouldn't be rain. And without rain, they can't survive. So this is going to be one of the times where that happens. But it's going to be clear that it's from God because his prophet comes and says, this is what we're doing. Because he is able to be on earth and seal the heaven so that things don't happen. And later on, he'll be on earth and unseal the heaven so that things do happen. He becomes associated with the sealing powers. This becomes a symbol for someone who has the sealing powers. And so he will be coming both in the days of the Savior and Peter, James, and John, and in the days of Joseph and Oliver, in the, the last dispensation or the dispensation of the fullness of times, to restore those sealing keys because he becomes so associated with them because of his ability to seal on earth and in heaven. And this is when he starts it. He says that there will be no water, and so no water comes. Uh, and as a result, then God uh, tells him, so no rain comes. Be, I should say there'll be no rain, so no rain comes. Uh, and so God tells him, right now, we're going to have to take care of you. So uh, he tells him to hide himself. They were in, in uh, First Kings chapter 17. Hide yourself by the brook Kerith, that is before Jordan. We don't know exactly where that is. Tradition holds that it's down kind of close to Jericho, but we really don't know. 
and he's going to get water from that brook. And uh, God says he's commanded the ravens to feed him there. Now, that could be read as Arabs to feed him there. And some people take it that way. Uh, that's possible, but I suspect it is the ravens. Now, I want you to think of the kind of food that ravens bring you, because ravens are scavengers, right? They're, they're carrion birds. So this is not, this is God's prophet who is doing his will and is going to suffer for doing his will. And God is going to take care of him, but he doesn't take care of him by sending him cake. He sends him what crows bring, right? What ravens bring. Not the best affair, but Elijah sticks with it. And, and he does that. And for a long time, they bring him bread and flesh in the morning and in the evening. And he drinks from the, drinks from the brook. And uh, that's, that's how he gets by. But after a while, even that brook will dry up. So now Elijah's going to have to do something else. So God tells him to go to Zarephath uh, in Zidon. So this is up in Phoenician territory. Ironic that when it's a Phoenician uh, princess who's become queen, who is leading his country into idolatry and causing all these problems, that he's going to go to Phoenicia uh, and find a righteous woman there who will preserve him. Right? They're just uh, there are a number of lessons I think God is trying to teach there, and Christ will make that point that uh, you know you, you can find righteousness anywhere, you can find wickedness anywhere. So he goes to Zarephath, and I know we're all familiar with the story, but there are some elements we just have to talk about. He goes to this woman, uh, and he says, "Pray." We're in verse ten of still First Kings seventeen. Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, so she says, okay, and water's precious, right? He says, bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And this is where she has to say, as, as the Lord, or in other words, Jehovah, thy God, liveth, right? So note that she is aware she's a Phoenician. She believes in Jehovah, but she knows she's not native to her, but that Elijah represents her. I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise, and I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son that we may eat and die. Can you imagine that? She says, we're down to our last meal. It's going to be a Johnny cake, right? Just a little bit of grain and a little bit of oil, and I'll cook it. And after that, we starve to death. Can you imagine as a mother being in that position? It's hard to even imagine what that is like. But that's how bad this famine has gotten. But look what Elijah says. Fear not. Go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. That is the hardest thing you could ask of this woman in this position. The hardest thing, give me your food first. And then trust this, for thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. So he's telling her, feed me first, exercise your faith first, right? This isn't, uh, hey, let's just make sure that you always have food and then you can start to feed me after you see that's true. It's no, exercise the faith first. Give me your last bit of food. The last thing that you think your son will ever eat. And then God will take care of you. And she does it. She went and did according to the saying of Elijah. And uh, she and he and her house did eat many days. Now, no, again, God did not send them cake. They ate what the pioneers would call Johnny cakes, right? That's just uh, flour from whatever kind of, it's probably from barley or emmer is the most common thing in those days. So not quite as tasty as, as, uh, uh, probably if they were making it from wheat flour, but anyway, uh, they're, they're eating just oil mixed with uh, meal or, you know, uh, kind of coarsely ground uh, grain for many days. That's all they eat, but the barrel of meal doesn't waste and the cruise of oil does not fail. Uh, that's amazing. And as a result, when this child dies, this the Elijah will raise the child from the dead. Now, 
one thing that's worth mentioning is that Elijah is a symbol or a type of Christ. He, he does things in a way that helps people recognize Christ. And you will see in the New Testament that people compare Christ to Elijah and Elisha all the time. And it's how they know he's an amazing prophet. And then when he exceeds their miracles, then they know there's something else going on. So it is the comparison with these two great miracle-working prophets that, that sets Christ apart. And it's the exceeding them that, that makes it clear he's the Messiah. When he can raise someone that's been dead for three days and we can heal someone that was born blind, uh, that's, that's when they say, okay, wow, uh, this is more than just a prophet. Uh, but I think it's worth learning from this woman who exercises her faith before she sees the evidence, even in her greatest extremity and for in her greatest sacrifice, the greatest sacrifice she could make. She still exercises that faith. And then God takes care of her and the prophet, not in high style, but he takes care of them. And, and that's great stuff. That brings us to chapter 18 in this famous showdown with the priests of Baal. So after many days, the word of the Lord says, go show thyself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And, and that happens. And there's this great story that Ahab's been looking for him for a while, and, and uh, no one can find him. And then he has a righteous servant who's actually been helping to save righteous people. And uh, uh, he and Ahab and the servant Obadiah are looking for Elijah. And uh, Elijah says, uh, tell him I'm coming. He's like, oh, no, no, you never show up when you're supposed to, right? You're a slippery character. Uh, but Elijah says, no, I'm going to go. And so he, he tells him, and uh, then Elijah is going to, uh, 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 he's, he's going to go and have this showdown, right? Um, and I love this when we get in verse 17. So now we're in 1 Kings 18, verse uh, 17. It came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, art thou he that troubleth Israel? This is so typical. When people bring things upon themselves because of their action, they blame it on others. So the question for us to ask ourselves is not for, to notice this in other people, but for us to say, what am I blaming on other people? Why am I saying this is just their fault? And ask their, yourself, is there any way it's your fault? And I love Elijah's answer. He's not going to take this kind of excuse making. He says, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord. And thou hast followed Baalim, which is plural for Baal. There are a number of forms of Baal. So then he says, let's, let's meet on Mount Carmel. Uh, the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, that's Asherah, 400, uh, which eat at Jezebel's table. And so they, they gather together on Mount Carmel for this contest. All right. Now, there are a couple of things that I, I want to highlight here. I'm going to come back to verse 21 in just a moment, the, the famous verse, and I'm going to come back to it in a moment. But I want to highlight a couple of things. They're meeting on Mount Carmel, uh, which means Karam El, or the vineyard of El. El is the head. He's like the uh, the head figure in the Canaanite pantheon. He is the head god. Baal is his son. Baal is uh, known for rain and storms, sending down lightning, thunder, and rain, and, and storms, and so on. So note that already this has been a contest between Jehovah and Baal, because the priests of Baal should be able to get, if Baal is really a god, they should be able to get rain to come, but they can't. Jehovah is clearly in charge of the rain. Now, Carmel is known for its lightning strikes, and for the fire that comes from those lightning strikes. In fact, one of the, the I've lived in Jerusalem for a half a year, a year, and then another year. So a total of two and a half years at different times. And uh, one of those times, so in two and a half years, I, I've been there when uh, lightning has struck and there's been a forest fire. So it's known for that. Um, we should also make sure we understand the uh, some more about the Canaanite pantheon. Um, El's consort, kind of his, it's almost like a wife kind of thing, 
is um, uh, is a knot, and a knot uh, is the dust of the earth, and so uh, we get uh, that coming into play here. Keep your eye on that. Asherah also is another goddess in in the pantheon. Uh, she's associated with the trees. Carmel is covered with all these uh, kind of uh, oak trees, a kind of oak um, that uh, she's associated with. All right. And then uh, one of the other main figures in the, the pantheon is Yom, uh, and he's associated with water. He's like Poseidon in a way, right? He's, he's associated with water. So keep all that in mind. We're going to come back to verse 21 in a minute. Um, but let's look at verse 22. Elijah said, I, even I only remain a prophet of the Lord, but you guys have 450 guys. So let's, let's get two bullocks. Uh, you choose one and cut in a piece of the on the wood and put no fire and I'll dress the other bullock and put no fire under it. And you call on your God and I'll call on, on Jehovah. And we'll see who actually answers with fire and, uh, consumes the wood. So this is clearly a contest between Baal and Jehovah. Right, because Baal should be able to, if he really is a god that's known for that, that can do what he's known for doing, send lightning and start the fire and consume the the sacrifice. So he he says, okay, go ahead and choose the bullock and, and you can go first. And and so they get the bullock and they they get it all up on there and they call for Baal and there's nothing. And they leap upon the altar and they do all sorts of dances and all sorts of other things, and he's not not uh, doing anything. Then we get Elijah. Elijah, one of the things I like about him, he's kind of the sarcastic prophet. Um, and uh, in, in that way, it's, it's kind of funny. So he's going to mock them. And he cries. He says, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's talking or he's pursuing or he's in a journey or peradventure he's sleeping that must be awake. He actually says, you know, maybe he's, uh, maybe he's on the toilet, right? So he says, hey, he's so busy chatting or he's off uh, visiting someone or he's in the toilet and can't be bothered because he's in the toilet or he's sleeping and you can't wake him up, right? just kind of making fun of them. And so they cry all the louder and they start hurting themselves. Uh, so the, uh, to kind of show, oh, well, we're sacrificing ourselves for you. And uh, they do this until it's after midday and it, even until it's time for the evening sacrifice and nothing happens. So then Elijah says, okay, my turn. And he repairs, there was an altar of the Lord that had been there that had been broken down, presumably by Jezebel and her priests of Baal. And uh, I don't know if these are Phoenicians, probably some Phoenicians, probably a bunch of Israelites as well, because they just, uh, our ancestors are just so easily swayed in this story. So Elijah takes 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of Jacob, and he uh, rebuilds this altar uh, in the name of Jehovah. And he makes a trench around the altar. Uh, it's a huge trench. And then he puts the wood in order and he cuts the bullock in pieces and lays, lays it on the wood. And then he says, fill four, four barrels with water. Now, keep in mind, they, they don't have any water. Water is a precious commodity, but he's still got some sway in power. So they get water and they pour it on the burnt sacrifice in the wood. And then he says, do it again. And they do it again and then do it a third time. So that's 12 barrels of water. And the water runs around the altar and it fills the trench that he dug. All right. So I hope you can see we now have um, Baal involved in this. We have El because also the, the bullock is a symbol for El. So we've got bullocks, which on Carmel or a sacred place for El. We've got the wood that from these oak trees. We've got the water, all right? And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, the time when true priests should be making an offering to Jehovah. Uh, then Elijah says, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things by thy word. Hear me, O Jehovah, hear me, that this people may know that thou art Jehovah, our God, 
uh, thou hast turned their heart back again. And the fire of Jehovah fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust. So now we're even getting a knot involved and licked up the water that was in the trench. Can you see how this contest is set up so that the entire, uh, well, the major uh, figures in the Canaanite pantheon are defeated. God has again, just like with uh, in Egypt, God has set this contest up in a way to convince this group of people who are so into symbolic language, symbolic action, he creates the symbolic action to preach the sermon to them that say that none of these Canaanite gods are God, but I am. I am the real God. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, Jehovah, he is God. Jehovah, he is God. And Elijah said, then take the prophets of Baal and don't let any of them escape. And they take them and, and to the brick of Shon and they slay them there. Um, and then uh it starts to rain and and elijah has a race with ahab and so on it's kind of interesting i'm going to go back to verse 21 and i want to make it a, a, what i think is an incredibly important point here this is just before the contest when elijah is gathering the people and going to start the contest and elijah came into all the people and i think he thunders this from there on top of mount carmel how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, or if Jehovah be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Now, when we hear that, how long halt ye, we usually think of halt as in stop. And so we think of this as him saying, how long are you stuck trying to figure out which one you could serve, which one you should serve? That's how we read it. But that's not how it should be read. The word halt here, the, the Hebrew word means to be lame or to limp. And halt is used here the same way it is in the New Testament. These are the same King James translators. Halt meaning uh, how long are you lame or limping? So let's reread this. How long will you limp between two opinions? What he is really saying is that because you are trying to do both, you can't move forward in either one. It's this idea of, you know, be hot or cold, not lukewarm. You are trying to worship both Jehovah and Baal, and as a result, you're lame. You, you limp, and you don't get anywhere. Now, that changes things for me. Again, these are our Israelite ancestors, and we should ask ourselves not if, but how we are doing the same thing. How? Because what, what they did most of the time, the, uh, the, our Israelite ancestors didn't stop worshiping Jehovah and start worshiping Baal or Asherah or whoever. They worshiped Jehovah and they added worshiping someone else. And they felt just fine about it because they were being quite devote, uh, devoted and devout in their worship of Jehovah in terms of the actions they were going through. They still did the sacrifices, still did the festivals. And so they felt just fine about following another God as well. But in the end, that meant that they couldn't really do either. They were limping between two opinions. So the question is not if, but how are you doing this? In what ways are you worshiping both Jehovah and the ideas and the ways of the world? And you feel just fine about it because you've mixed the two together. You've taken God's ideas and the world's ideas, and you've come up with strange concoction that makes it so you can't really do anything, but you don't realize it. One of the ways this would be happening today, I think, is as we mix God's ideas about what it means to love each other and to love him and be faithful to his commandments and the world's ideas. And then we start to allow anything because we want to love everybody. And so everything is okay. And anyone who says that any particular action is wrong is bad because they're not really full of love. That's worshiping God and Jehovah. I mean, Jehovah and the world at the same time. That's this mixture that makes it so we can't go anywhere. We're certainly not progressing in our relationship with God 
or at least if we are, we're limping through that progression in compared to what should be happening because we've mixed the ideas of the world and the ideas of God. It happens in a thousand ways. Uh, the, the definitions of success, when we accept the world's definitions of success and mix it with God's, then we end up really worshiping or aiming at for things that aren't what we should really be aiming for and spending our time and our, our passions and our energies on the wrong things. And we're limping between two opinions. There, are, there is no doubt that in some way, each one of us, and probably in multiple ways, each one of us have taken the ideas of the world and the teachings of God and mix them together and come up with some strange hybrid. And we feel great about it because it's got something of God in it. And we are worshiping God and we go to church and we do some ministering and we pay our tithing. And so we feel absolutely fantastic about it when really what we're doing is limping between two opinions. The first step is to recognize that we do this. The second is to find, to identify some of the ways that we are doing it. And then we have to start to undo it. If we don't do those three steps, then we will always be limping between two opinions. So again, I plead with you, ask yourself, how are you worshiping both Jehovah and the ideas of the world? And how can you undo that? How do you, uh, people that you know, how are they doing it? And let's work on truly being a holy and a peculiar people that are godly rather than worldly. We're so prone to want to be worldly as much as we are godly. And what a disaster that is. And it is killing people in the church right now spiritually. It's just killing us. And we have to stop it. So let's identify and start to worship God and God alone, Jehovah, with all of our heart, might, mind, and strength. That is my plea and my promise that when we do, then we'll stop limping and we'll really start to make progress. And of course, it'll be incremental in some ways. We'll identify one thing and then after a while, we can identify another and then another. But each time you do it, you start to propel yourself forward in your covenant relationship with God rather than limp forward. And of that, I testify. And for that, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.